0: Welcome to Off the Record. I'm your host Marika and I'm a dietitian, nutritionist and recovering perfectionist. Join me each week as I bring you raw and real conversations with inspiring men and women discussing matters in health and nutrition that are often swept under the rug. Sit back, relax, pour yourself a cup of coffee or a wine and enjoy learning from conversations that help us to understand the messiness of what it means to be a healthy and balanced human. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Off The Record. I am so excited that we are finally here. I feel like this podcast has been oh, years in the making. I think I first had an idea and potentially even started talking about it on my Instagram three years ago Um, and yet here we are finally made it Um, I hope that the wait is worth it and that we have refined the idea of what this podcast is all about Um, and that is it is about having conversations in health that matter um, talking about matters that you know really play into our health and nutrition that are often not spoken about. One of the things I have found with my work in nutrition is that, you know, we're really quick to sort of label people's diets and, you know, address the way that people are eating, but there's often so much more under the surface that we're not speaking about. So I guess that's the purpose of this podcast. Um, so welcome to episode one, and I hope episode one is um, a great way to kick off this potty. It is an episode that I thoroughly enjoyed uh, recording and one that I think really drives home the purpose of this podcast. So it is with Alicia Johnson, and she is an inspiring Indigenous woman and a passionate advocate for our First Nations peoples. In today's episode, I share an insight into health and people's experience of health to help us all, and myself included, to get a better understanding of the role that culture and race play in nutrition and health, and also to help us have better conversations around race and culture. I wanted to address uh, in this episode the question that I think that we have personally all been struggling with lately, and... That being that how can we better support our First Nations peoples? It's something that I think that, you know, with Black Lives Matters last year, um, we all sort of had brought to our attention race and the inequalities that are, you know, people are experiencing. But I think many of us are really struggling with, well, what next and what are the steps that we can take? So this is something that I discuss uh, with Alicia in the podcast. So I hope you love this episode as much as I loved recording it. And let's jump into episode one. So there welcome we to the podcast, Alicia Johnson. We are so excited to have you here and to have this really important conversation on such an important day. Now, I know this mm. um, this podcast won't be going live for uh, quite a few weeks, but today is National Sorry Day. So I feel like it's timely to have you on the podcast today mm. as well. Good to be here. Um, yeah. Thank you so much. I've been watching what you've been doing on social media for uh, quite a few weeks now, and it's inspiring to mm. see how passionate you are about um, what's important to you.
1: Thank um, you so much. And again, it's really nice um, meeting other women that are, you know, channeling, uh, challenging dominant narratives around our own bodies and our health. So I'm super glad to be here today and have this yarn.
0: Yes, yes. And we were actually just talking off um, off the record, which is obviously the podcast name as well, but we we're just talking before <laughs> we started recording uh, about this conversation and I guess like how we sort of begin these sorts of conversations, me being somebody who is not fully educated and not fully aware on how mm-hmm. to have conversations. And even my first question for you is, you know, are we do we call it First Nations people? Do we call Indigenous mm-hmm. Australians? Like what is even the correct term yep. um when we start having these conversations?
1: I think that is so amazing to ask. And like we were yarning about off um earlier, um really feeling comfortable enough to even ask so if you have a First Nations person at your workplace or like you know you may meet them through school or any social setting maybe just even ask them like what do you like to be referred to um, in relation to being Aboriginal or Indigenous because um, we also have Aboriginal people but we also have Torres Strait Islander and they are as well Indigenous and you may have somebody that is both Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander so I really like uh, being called Indigenous or First Nations or aboriginal but i think it's always nice just to ask as well
0: yeah that's such a valid point i didn't even think of that yeah. and that's obviously <laughs> the, the best answer that you can possibly give is ask the person what they think yeah. um and like we were saying i think that there's this fear of asking these questions mm-hmm. because we don't want to be wrong but being silent is not the best you know not saying it's anything so is actually worse
1: It's so true. And I feel like a lot of it has been um, uh, as a result of the divide between Indigenous people and non Indigenous people. Um, We're not, you know, able to have healthy communication. We're not encouraged to do that. It's always like, you know, Indigenous people are read about in books or just othered. Um, Or, you know, if we're athletes, we're athletes. Or if we're artists, we're artists. We don't really get to have like, you know, personal yarns. And even with my own work, I really realised a lot of the time that non-Indigenous people didn't want to insult me or hurt my feelings. Mm. So in the end they just look like, you know, they may be, um, you know, a bloody fish just sitting there, you know, not moving, but in reality they don't want to, you know, offend me or rub me the wrong way. So I um, like to always encourage people, you know, uh, feel comfortable enough to introduce yourself and let the Indigenous person know, oh, you know, I don't know much but I'd love to know more. Yes. And that
0: is exactly the purpose of this podcast today. I don't know much. I'm sure a lot of my listeners don't know much and we want to know more and in particular, know more about you and your story and your experience within the health system um, Mm -hmm. and your experiences with what does health look like for you? So could you start speaking about your work? What, what is your work and what's um, actually, let's begin. What's your story? What's, what's, where are you? (laughs)
1: that's a big question but an important one and I love that you've asked that because I feel like we all have a journey and it's so nice to kind of like jump in on the high points or where we're at now but you know our childhood matters our adolescence matters and how we've navigated to be where we are so I um grew up, I've always been back and forth from Sydney and my community, um, my Indigenous or my uh, country town. Um, And that's a a common trend for a lot of Indigenous people. They kind of move back and forth. And um, as a result of these communities not having a lot of resources. So I grew up in a place called Broken Hill. I spent a lot of my childhood, but then my parents moved us back to Sydney for um, high school. And they also noticed that the town wasn't uh, very the best for young Indigenous girls. There was unfortunately a lot of racism and stereotypes which would prevent us from doing the most basic things like getting jobs when we turn 16 or, you know, them feeling safe with us kind of leaving the nest. Um, so I've been in Sydney ever since, but I always kind of go back to my country town and stay connected. But um, over the last year I've been working really hard to channel my voice on social media. Um, I just felt like there was a lack of my perspective in this and a real intersectionality. So being an Indigenous woman, being a fat one and being allowed outspoken one. So I really wanted to kind of create space around um, women like me or other people that may um, connect to that, just not fitting within a, a category, if that makes sense.
0: Absolutely. And I think that that is such a good point. And, and we definitely need to create space for that. We need to create space for absolutely everybody, but particularly marginalized groups. And as yeah. you said, um, and being an Indigenous woman and being a fat woman, as well as the words that you use, um, yeah. it, it, it is something that is not, you know, that we're not seeing and we're not hearing about. And I guess one of my yeah. first questions then is, I'm assuming that you probably would not have seen people like you in in mainstream media and you would not have had those people to sort of almost look up to in mainstream. Not that we should be looking up to mainstream media, but how how does it make you feel that you, you know, growing up weren't represented um, in mainstream media or just in everyday life? It's so true, and
1: I love that you've said that. You've really hit the nail on the head with the duality because I wasn't seen on television, but then I also wasn't seen, you know, out and about, like, in society, like, uh, you know, even the most basic thing, like health brochures, you know, growing up being a young Indigenous person or on television or any capacity really um, celebrated. But in saying that, I want to be really... I really want to explain this because for a lot of marginalized collectives, we draw strength from our collective. So I was really lucky. I had amazing role models. I had these fabulous and glamorous and cheeky and diva aunties that were these bigger women. And that were just so boisterous and hilarious, like out of control. And I'm not talking one. I'm not talking two. I'm talking five. Five aunties, you know, that have really influenced me as a woman and growing up around them, they were my role models and they, you know, could cook and they could clean, but they had jobs and they were taking care of the kids and the bills and hilarious. So they were my role models growing up. I was very, very lucky. But in saying that, um, not seeing representation at times was really trying. And even ageism. So being in different age categories growing up, so being a youth, being going through my 20s and now embarking on my 30s, unfortunately, there is still lack of that representation
0: Mm, absolutely and did you do you think that that's had an effect on um, either now or um, back in your teens or in your early 20s um, an effect on your self-esteem or um, anything like that
1: well I think unfortunately and I was I have touched on this before the reality is Young women in this country, it is more common to have terrible things trigger warning like body dysmorphia or you know even unhealthy eating habits and things of that nature. And I have been a part of that. I have been a part of you know um, not eating during high school and starving all day or for a few days and then just eating and these unhealthy um, habits in relation to food. Quite young, and that was as a result of just wanting to be smaller and just wanting and working so hard uh, unhealthily and not having education around how to be healthier and, you know, understanding metabolisms and portion sizes and, you know, heavier foods and things of that nature. So I was... Journeying through that quite young, but lucky for me enough, I realised it wasn't working. I've always been kind of switched on, um, and I realised that this was not working for me. If anything, this was making me really unhealthy. And I knew um, about other girls in my class and school who were not doing so well with their their health and eating habits. And um, I just didn't want to go down that path. If that makes sense, and I think that's the case for a lot of young girls. But in saying that, I also played a lot of sport. Okay, yeah. so I was doing representative basketball, and at that time, and anyone who's done any sport you are really um put under a lot of pressure you know you're weighed you're measured you're watched how your body moves what you can do what you can't do and you're judged on it so that also exacerbated but in saying that I had these wonderful aunties at home that um reminded me of who I am and you know what healthy means to them and me is very different to what it may mean to someone else.
0: Yeah. So could you tell us more about that? What does healthy mean to either yourself or what did it mean to your aunties? What was the, I guess, what was health that you looked up to in them Mm. and health being in the whole sense of the word as well?
1: Exactly. I was about to say that you're already, (laughs) we're already on the same wavelength. Um, So health for me was not starving myself. Okay, so eating healthily, uh, having your three meals, you know, having your snacks, but also saying that um, not stress eating. So a big thing for me, or I feel like a lot of people are living in this society now where we're just literally strung out to exhaustion, Um, understanding that, you know, I don't need to eat when I'm stressed out. You know, um, if I'm going to eat something, you know, make sure that I'm really, you know, making a a mental note because throughout the day you can just kind of be eating crazily. Um, But watching my aunties as well um, prepare food, so having, like, respect for the food, really um, value how they're cooking, you know, if they could minimise oils or fats, do that, if that makes sense. We eat a lot of baked food, ironically. Um, We have a very Indigenous people, I guess we're getting into it, but Indigenous people through colonisation, we have a very, like, traditional English um type of foods you wouldn't believe it we love our you know our baked um potatoes everything's baked baked bloody baked cabbage we get um a lot of stews we do roasts we do um things like a silver side you know we have these very very traditional meals and a lot of them are in fact baked but then you do have um those you know heavily ladled creamed meals as well and you're you know a lot of pasta as well because it's very affordable but watching my my aunties prepare and respect food is something that's always stayed with me and because mm. it's been such a, a scarcity for first a lot of first nations families having access to fresh produce so that was something for me that was healthy was valuing the food that I was eating preparing it respectfully and making sure that I'm um you know eating the right foods if that makes sense yeah, you don't yeah. have to put a lot of preparation into a packet of chips no you, you don't put a lot of pre- <laughs> preparation into a tub of ice cream but a well put together meal you do
0: Yes, absolutely. And what role um, did your, if any, did your culture have in food growing up? Yeah, if any, Mm -hmm. or um, did it play a large role? Does it still play a role? Um, Are there any sort of native foods that, you know, are really important Mm -hmm. to you? And So for me, health is all about the individual. And so um, whatever that looks like in terms of uh, cultural values. So for example, um, I've worked before with people from Sri Lankan heritage and like having their curries Mm. and whatnot is really important to them because that's part of their heritage. So for me, you know, somebody telling that person that they can't have a curry because Mm. it's not healthy. That actually goes Mm. against what I would define as health. Like if that's part of your culture, then that is actually your definition of health. So are there Mm. any sort of examples like that that you had either growing up or that you incorporate now? That is such an amazing question because
1: we do have, uh, like, bullying within Indigenous, you know, spaces around bigger bodies. But what I will say, it is in no comparison to mainstream. So in our communities, in our society, being fat, you are not nobody. You are not uh disgusting. You are not ugly. You are not uh undesirable. You're not worthless. You're not, you know, a disgrace to your family, or you know, your family don't kind of disown you or just see you as unworthy of love, is what I'm trying to say. So I I had a very big culture clash going out of my little community that you know told me I was healthy or we have a word called solid, so solid is like um, when you're just a bit chunkier or you're a bit stronger you've just got a little bit of extra weight, um, or even if you are fat, even if you're fat like me big you know it's called solid it's not called fat i would literally say to my dad I'm, I'm so fat he said no you're not you're solid and that word to us is like very powerful it means that you are who you are you know embody who you are uh, and very early on indigenous people have recognized that fat is a negative word it has a lot of bad connotations so we provide an alternative you are solid you know you would be proud of yourself and um, my parents would always and even now positively uh you know positively remind me of my capacity and my health like you're you're doing great you don't have High blood pressure, you don't have high cholesterol, you know, you're doing great. And if I was younger, they would remind me, you know, you're killing it at basketball, you're doing a great job, like you're very active. So, really destigmatizing what it means to be fat. But in saying that, uh, a big speaking point I wanted to talk about is poverty. You know, and I'm sure you know, and I'm sure you've gone going to explore that on this podcast. But particularly in relation to First Nations people, we have to understand the impacts of food scarcity. Now, this is passed down from generation from generation. So just like everything in our society, how we learn how to what healthy relationships are, how we learn how to be parents, how we learn to uh, manage our emotions, it's passed down. And unfortunately for us, food and um, understanding that holistically is is something that we're embarking on now um, in probably the last 20 to 40 years. But when my mother was growing up, when her mother was growing up, nobody was teaching us you know, uh, what having too much starch in your diet or having, you know, big bigger portions meant or what it meant when you were, were not having enough vitamins and minerals, when you were not having enough fats, when you were starving or eating, you know, canned foods and and long, long life type of uh, foods, if that makes sense. Or if you weren't eating any at all, um, you know, we uh, very early on with the arrival of the British were provided rations and these rations consisted of tea, flour, sugar and tobacco. So, that is literally what uh, Indigenous people were uh, paid in or provided and, and kind of had to make it work. And as a result of that, for example, uh, we have uh, with flour, there's a variety of different things we can make, an uh, array of cakes, array of different slices. Get very resourceful. I was was about to say, you guys, it is crazy, Um, but also things like our damper and our fried scones and then you have uh, johnny cakes that are, you know, cooked on coals and you have scones that are obviously fried, but then you have baked scones and then you have damper. So there's just an array of different resourcefulness or an array of different foods, but we were never told the horrific impacts that flour has on your body and for the long term as well, but also for our children, how it has zero to little no nutrition value and the impacts that that had on us because pre-colonisation we had access to different wheats we had access to different grains this is things that we would eat we would still eat similar things to bread but those were highly nutritious they were full of fibre they were very good for you so we were replaced with an alternative that was very very damaging
0: yeah, absolutely. And I think you raised such an important point around poverty and this is again something that I'm so passionate about is like we're, we're sort of breaking back the layers to health and you know I I don't think we can have a con- uh, conversation about health if we're not talking about poverty if we're not talking about so racism true. because these things play such a big role in yeah not only your experience of health but your access to health then as well That's or so healthcare. True. Um and I think that for a lot of people that Poverty sort of is not on their radar and, you know, scarcity when it comes to food and food insecurity is not something that we actually even see as a problem. You know, being in Sydney, you don't see well in the Eastern suburbs, particularly, you don't see um, food scarcity. You don't see, you almost see the the opposite problem. Um, Mm -hmm. So I think for a lot of people of a lot of the listeners, they'll be sort of going, well, is this actually an issue? Is, is food scarcity is food insecurity and actually an Mm -hmm. issue within Australia? And, I can answer from all I know, and the answer is absolutely yes. It's yeah. You don't even have to go far out of Sydney. Um, I mean, so you can true. still be within Sydney and see yeah. um, food scarcity and that impact that that has on your access to, you know, fresh fruit and vegetables, your um, your ability to afford them. And a lot of people I'm go, so well, true. you know, eating healthy is cheap and affordable. Yeah. But have you been to Broken Hill and seen, you know, so what <laughs> see what is available yeah out there um it's horrendous and
1: even with um as we all know like sydney in particular is going through a massive housing crisis and i'm telling you like horrific we have families all different backgrounds living in hotels so they got literally going hotel to hotel to hotel because there are no properties available for them to live in now a lot of those other families that are just making it right are living in private rentals Okay, so you can imagine having multiple children um, or even just one and or even being a single person, you know, and living in a very expensive uh, property and struggling to pay rent and electricity and water and, you know, your car, let alone trying to prioritize a healthy meal. And then A, B, having the time to do that. And I think that's the smallest things we need to realize is, you know, a housing crisis that even affects rich or more well-off, I think everyone can feel the pinch after you pay your rent, but imagine that being exacerbated. Imagine having literally... $20 left after paying um, your bills, if that makes sense, because that's the reality for Australians every single day, but especially First Nations people um, that already to begin with did not have the understanding of, you know, impacts of um, European foods on our bodies and a lot of miseducation as well, being told that we think we know our stews uh, or, you know, adding flour to a curry is healthy and good, uh, when in reality it's
0: not. Mm. Um, and I think you raised an important point there with, um, with regards to, it's not only having access to these foods and being able to afford them, but having the knowledge and education and resources to then be able to prepare something with them and the time as well. Um, yeah. you know, if you are working two jobs just to try and make ends meet and trying to feed a family mm-hmm. and, you know, where, where you get the time to one, learn how to cook. Do you even have, you know, a fully equipped kitchen? And what? have you been taught how to cook as well? So these so are all true. really important things that I think that as uh, individuals, as a, as a privileged individual who has access to, you know, a kitchen and knows how to cook, we need to sort of consider this, um, consider our privilege essentially when we're having so true. conversations and when we're sort of also complaining about our own health. I think um, I feel like that, you know, I've worked with a lot of, and, again, each and every person has their own sort of issues and their own priority. So but That's it's. It. Sometimes nice to put it in perspective as well. as like, you know, we might be complaining that we can't get the last like two kilos off when it's like you have access so to true. a lot of food and like it's it's exactly. very lucky.
1: <laughs> yeah. And even understanding like why getting that last two kilos off is important, you know, because a lot of my work around being confident or being, you know, comfortable with being fat and being big is like health and as you know body image and looking a specific way it does not correlate you know you cannot look skinny and assume that person is healthy and look at a fat person and assume they're not so I feel like I'm doing a lot of unworking because there's just so many layers to this but also there's a lot of exploitation so you know we're told by the beauty industry what is healthy what is desirable we're told by you know specific um entities what is healthy and what's not if it's if it's a a particular uh, diet regime or a fad diet or even if it's a good one you know there's so many different plans is what I'm trying to say so we have to be really critical with analyzing that because health and body image don't represent each other but
0: unfortunately they really intertwine. Yeah we again the right word there is unfortunately I think that that's somehow been layered on top of each other that health and body image is I mean health Having positive body image, I think, is part of being healthy. So true, yeah. Um, But it, the flip side isn't true, that you don't, you know, mm. having a negative body image doesn't mean that you're unhealthy and body image is not, the way that you see yourself is not a direct impact on your, so like, health true. outcomes. So like you mentioned earlier, things like blood pressure and blood sugars and those yeah. sorts of things. It's not, your size doesn't necessarily dictate those sorts of things.
1: That's right. And um, one example I wanted to give you guys, I was thinking a bit earlier is, so my family make this amazing curry. So it's like a beautiful, it's full of veg, um, you name it, it's in there. So it'll be, you know, potatoes, peas, uh, carrots, you know, sometimes they put eggplant in it, you name it. It's just a complete array of different vegetables in this beautiful stock, this beautiful curry. It's just absolutely divine, right? But they have things called dumplings now a lot of people in Queensland you know you fellas know what it is but we have this thing called dumplings they're little like little dough balls and they're put inside of the curry as an alternative to meat. so my family have passed this down from generation to generation to generation because they were so poor this curry would consist of whatever vegetable they would have but that flour that dumpling which is literally a dough ball and cooked beautifully and it absorbs all that flavor that is what fills you up you know yeah. so we need to recognize that they have there are still indigenous people in this country that are eating these types of foods because we cannot afford to buy meat. but also importantly, we are going through uh, still going through colonisation where we're unable to access our foods, we're unable to you know um be able to live off the land because it's being owned and it's being privatized. So understand that yes, we were given flour back in the eighteen hundreds as a ration. But understand that still to this day, we're unable to, you know, live our lives the way we want to and access um, mm-hmm. our traditional ways of being because of colonisation, if that makes sense.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Um, I'm going to ask a question that I might be completely off the mark with that, but if like so for example that curry that you just explained Mm -hmm. does that curry have like what sort of place of importance does that style of food hold within your life so the way Mm -hmm. that I see it is almost like it could go two ways in the sense that you know that was like a sense of scarcity and that you had to do that Mm -hmm. or it could have actually become part of like you know something that's almost like comfort food for you because yeah so yeah what what sort of um feelings are associated with something like that is it one of positive or is it one of sadness in the sense that they didn't have access to or is it a mixture
1: it's it's, and that is such an amazing question and one that i've never thought of before but it's definitely like happy so if they make it the curry or they make the chicken soup because they also put the dumplings in chicken soup um we'd be so excited now originally the chicken soup what looked like for my mom and her sisters it would have been often the bones of the chicken or it would have just been like one or two pieces and they kind of boil it up so you get all of that beautiful flavor um but we're lucky enough now it has actual chicken in it but we kind of include those dumplings in there and if they make the chicken soup without the dumplings like oh did you put dumplings in there or oh, we'll be all excited oh she made it but she put the dumplings in there we'll get so excited because it is that comfort food but most importantly it's a reminder of where we've come from it's a reminder of you know our people's capacity to continuously keep going but what i also want you guys to know is a lot of first nations people we don't have someone to fall back on so if i if i lose all of this today guys and you may go over to my instagram and see i'm living a wonderful life i struggle financially like a lot of single mums, but i'm doing really good right If I lose everything, I don't have someone to fall back on. I don't have a relative's house or a garage to move in or someone to pay my rent or someone to ask for a loan. I may have a, you know, spare room at an auntie's house. But in saying that, guys... Those dumplings will feed me. Those, that food in that moment is a, is a, uh, you know, a reminder of a lifestyle. But that so quickly can become a reality when you're poor and you're living just above the poverty line, like I am. So remembering that these knowledges are passed down of survival and like navigating Australia and being safe in public and protecting ourselves within hospitals and the healthcare system eating these foods that are going to keep your belly full and give you maximum nutrition that they can, if it's a broth, if it's a curry with dumplings, um, remembering that knowledge, if that makes sense.
0: Yeah, yeah, no, great insight. Um, And you mentioned there with the healthcare system, that's something that I did want to touch Mm -hmm. on as well. Um racism is something that I find is rife throughout the healthcare system. and I just mm-hmm. wanted to sort of see what has your experience been of that if you've had experience with racism within the healthcare system, what has your uh, you know experience been engaging um, with the health system?
1: Yeah, that's a great question, and um, unfortunately for Indigenous people, since the moment I was conceived, I was experiencing racism. So as soon as I saw that my mum was Indigenous, my dad was Indigenous, and I would be an Indigenous child, uh, we're it automatically uh, mistreated, automatically degraded, automatically not provided the same health care that everybody else is. And you may wonder, what does that look like? So it's the most basic thing is, Hello how are you? You are safe here. You are welcome here. We want to treat you. We want to take care of you. This is your right as an Australian to access this service. We are not provided that. We are not comfortable. We are reminded that we aren't allowed or, you know, don't ask too many questions. Don't try to use any type of autonomy. Don't try to ask questions or inquire or take control of your health journey in any capacity. So that may be with seeing a GP, but it may also be within an emergency, uh, you know, you know, scenario. So that constant reminder. And rather than try to explain, I want to give you all an example. So I am um, very drug free. I have never taken recreational drugs. I've never been drunk in my life. I've never drunk. I've never smoked cigarettes in my life. That's just me. I've never done those things. Um, that's my personal preference. But I had a back spasm, you guys. Now, I'm six foot tall, so I'm a very big woman, right? I had a back spasm. I was like, oh, my God. I was, uh, was studying too long in uni. I was at college. I was, you know, not sitting right, not the best posture. I knew my back was gone. I've never had it like this before. So, anyways, I went to the emergency. I was in agony, you guys. I had to go in an em- uh, in an ambulance. It was the worst pain in my whole life, and I had a slip disc, guys, I was in pain. Anyways. I'm laying in bed crying. My mother is freaking out because my mum's seeing me hysterical. The first thing you can't do when you're black in this country, when you're Indigenous, is be hysterical. You can't be overly happy. You can't be overly scared. You can't be overly in pain. You can't do nothing. You have to be placid. You have to... Go with the motion. So my mom's sitting next to me, my mom's terrified. And I was freaking out because I'm like, my mom's this little staunch, you know, little powerhouse, right? You know, again, a little matriarch. And I'm like, why is my mom acting like this? Because she was scared. So I see nurse after nurse. I'm laying in the bed for about three hours, guys, this howling, like crying in pain, to the point they were trying to keep me quiet. A doctor finally came in, guys they refused me. The nurses refused me any type of pain medication. The doctor just left me and left me and left me for three, I think I was there for three hours. I won't say four, but it felt like it. They left me for three hours until the point they gave me a needle. Anyone with back spasms, I don't know, I think it was a muscle relaxer. They gave me some medication, pain medication, and then they gave me a muscle relaxer in my back. Guys, as soon as they injected me with that, my whole body just They literally, the whole pain went away is what I'm trying to say. They literally left me on that bed because they thought I was going on because I wanted drugs. They thought I was behaving like this because I wanted heavy painkillers. They went on like this because they thought that my slip disc was not real. I went through, I had a scan, I had an x-ray, I believe, and it was in fact a slip disc. That is a treatment we receive. No 20-year-old young person should be left in pain, howling, crying, in excruciating pain because you think they have a drug habit. You think they want pain meds. I didn't even ask for pain meds. I asked for a doctor. So what I'm trying to say here, guys, is these experiences are a part of our everyday life. But learning to navigate these systems is very challenging. It's exhausting. And in saying that, accessing Emergency care is so traumatising. What's the point of going to see a doctor if I'm worried I'm gaining too many kilos? What's the point of worrying about a doctor if, you know, I'm feeling a bit dizzy, I'm feeling a bit lightheaded after I eat a meal or, you know, I'm craving a lot of sugar? What's the point in that when I can't even receive the most basic of healthcare such as an emergency service or birthing, um, you know, going through that experience of, you know, prenatal care? What is the point of that if I don't get it when I'm in most need in preventative measures but also handling what we would label the small stuff?
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. Thank you so much for sharing that. And I think examples just are the perfect way to sort of give light to these situations because Mm. as somebody who I would never like treat somebody in that way, like it's, it's almost hard to comprehend How do these things still happen? Like, how is this still a thing? So, providing examples like that, I think, is really powerful that shows people this is still happening today. This is still Mm. happening in Sydney. This is still happening. That's right.
1: And it was a main hospital in Sydney, guys. It wasn't a rural or remote little town that, you know, were racist or whatever. This was a main hospital in Sydney and one that had an array of people and, unfortunately, a lot of Indigenous people attend this service as well. And it just shows, uh, again, it doesn't matter what age you are, it doesn't matter how you present, how well you speak, how hard you try to communicate what you're experiencing, when you're black you do not receive or when you are Aboriginal you do not receive The appropriate care and you are reminded of that.
0: Mm. And you have a beautiful daughter who I've seen on your social media. Thank you. Um, I wanted to sort of ask you, how do you or have you um, navigated any conversations about racism with her and how do you approach that um, and how is she receiving that?
1: Mm. So I've been thinking about this question as well. So um, the way that I was raised um, and I'll be raising my daughter the same way, my parents focused on the positives So they made sure that I knew who I was. They made sure that I was proud of being Aboriginal. They made sure that I knew about my culture. I knew about us, you know, surviving and the way we lived before. um, We call it often the dream time, the way we lived uh, before colonisation, looking after each other, taking care of the land, um, learning about the stars, learning about plants and medicines and things like that, but also being hilarious, being humorous and laughing and hearing these stories about my mum growing up and, you know, the most rare, like human things, human nature. But when you are a marginalised collective, those moments of laughter, those moments of culture and truth, they mean the world. So from five, I knew I was Aboriginal. I was very proud of being Aboriginal. Um, but when I went into the school system, it was I can't, I'm not gonna get into it guys because it's very triggering. But when I went into kindergarten, it was um a wake-up call. It was literally horrific the most worst racism that you can imagine a child would endure and the fact that teachers educators are around and participated in it let it happen normalized it um that is where the trauma really lies for me because there were teachers around countless of them in the school that knew that was what was happening to first nation students as i was going to a very Uh, highly populated Indigenous school, but also non-Indigenous as well and did nothing about it. So my thing that I'm passing on to my daughter is... um being proud and t- letting her know that she is First Nations. This is her country. This is her land. We've been here for 80,000 years, but also let her know um, if racism does happen in her school system to let me know, because a lot of the time I did not tell my parents because I was scared. I was embarrassed. I was ashamed and um, I internalized it. So making sure that my daughter feels comfortable and confident enough as well to navigate that, but also having a big conversation with my daughter's kindergarten teacher. So I've been planning it. She's to kindy next year I would love to sit down with her kindergarten teacher and just let her know Emily is Indigenous um, if there are racism or if there's any experiences I'm happy to come in and have a yarn to the kids and tell them a bit about our culture a bit about who we are but most importantly make sure that teacher is managing it within the classroom and if I have to do that every single year for the rest of her schooling I will because we have to ensure that First Nation children are safe within our schools and I definitely don't want her to have the experience I had my mother had my mother's mother and um so forth
0: wow wow that's it's so inspiring of you to Thank yeah you. To, to put so much passion into what you're doing that you obviously do I mean everybody would do what they can for their children but the fact that mm-hmm. you're sort of you're essentially going out and saying, "I'm going to educate the entire world for my daughter Literally. to make sure that she that she <laughs> stays <it>. safe." <laughs> That's um, my whole Instagram is just to make sure these little Aboriginal babies are taken care of. <laughs> um, well, and a word that you you mentioned there is feeling safe, and I think mm-hmm. that this is such a a big term and a big topic. But such an important one, and again, when we come back to the conversation around health, it's something that we don't really sort of consider mm-hmm. as like you know, when we think about healthy living, we think about exercise and diet and mm-hmm. mental health and everything. But feeling safe is probably the most important. Um, I'm just trying to think, is there anything I would prioritize above safety? I don't know. I don't, I don't think I would no. prioritize much above safety when it comes to your health because if you don't feel safe, your body is literally in a state of fight or flight, twenty four seven, like that, mm-hmm. and that is the experience, uh, as far as I'm aware, for a lot of First Nations people. Is, is. that they don't feel safe in their everyday. Mm-hmm. It's waking up every morning, right. wondering, you know, what what's. What's today going to bring? Mm. What's today going to bring my daughter? What's today going to bring my son? That's right. And even the most basic thing like going to Woolies and Coles, we are persecuted
1: within the shopping centres, guys. We are followed around the shopping centre. My bags will be searched in out of everybody. So this podcast is obviously talking about health, but for me I cannot separate my race from my health. I cannot uh, separate my race from my sexuality. I cannot separate my race from me being a mother. My race is uh, centred to or who I am because that's my identity is Aboriginal. That's my being, my core being. But also we live in a, a society that um, very early clicked on that Aboriginal people are proud to be who we are and as a result persecute us about that so even the most basic thing as we know uh fresh vegetables and produce goes off really fast let's be real it goes off super duper fast so you're popping in to get more food regularly and if especially if you have larger families you're popping in regularly to the shop to uh get that fresh produce but when you're doing that, you're also exposing yourself to more potential racial stereotyping, more potential racial degradation, more exposure to being. Racially degraded, and that is exactly the case of what happens with the healthcare system. So, you may be like, Oh, I've got a migraine, I need to go to the doctors, which is something that I have. I go to the doctors, I want migraine. Are you taking drugs? Are you doing this? Do you have high cholesterol? Do you have high blood pressure? Are you, you know, doing do you have STDs? All these stereotypes about Aboriginal people. No, 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 I'm just having really bad migraines. I need I need to, you know, reevaluate my screen time. I don't need you to throw a plethora of stereotypes at me, if that makes sense. And guys, these little moments that I'm talking about is why we're seeing the statistics that we're seeing for First Nations people. That is why I will die 10 years younger than you. That is why Indigenous men will die 15 years younger. Guys, I'm living with day-to-day being lucky that my dad is alive, lucky that my grandfather is alive because of these horrific health statistics. And arguably racism is underpinning that.
0: Mm, I love what you said then about how like, I guess moving towards a healthier diet, for example, might mean that you need to go into the store more and that then Mm -hmm. poses more opportunity for racism because again that is just a huge barrier then to uh engaging in in health and like you said in the healthcare system but like even then take it like you know to go to the gym or to go even outside for a walk in a, a public space you're That's actually right. exposing yourself to and racialist
1: and I love that you say that because I've been racially stereotyped in a gym. Like, you know, when you go into the gym room, guys, you put your bags in the little cubbies. Everyone's really chill. Every time I walk up in there with the hoodie, every time I walk up in there with a the hat on, you know, I am typecast as this. Aboriginal here with a hoodie on, and doesn't no matter how, how nice I am or how much I keep my head down, people are scared. People will grab their bags and say, "No, stuff that my bags coming with me." There's an Aboriginal in this place, or in the change room. Women will act scared when I walk into the room, change rooms, or the toilets when they see me going in, or people will stare at me when I'm working out, and that intertwines with being fat, but that also intertwines with being visibly Aboriginal and having mm. brown skin in this country.
0: Mm, it's it's such a challenge and I guess how do you stay motivated in that or do you stay motivated um towards like to me you beam health like you are Thank like happy you. and vibrant <laughs> and um Thank know who you. you are and I think uh, you said yep. that earlier is knowing who you are and I think that's such an integral part of health so what Thank do you like yeah, how do you stay motivated to be who you are
1: I love that question and that's what I want to do guys is because Aboriginal people or me I'm talking about a lot of uh detrimental characteristics which need to be addressed but let's also celebrate the tenacity of us so we will go to the health check i will go to all my prenatal appointments i will go to this emergency uh, uh, you know room and demand you help me with this bloody back spasm and i will go to the gym and you know what you're going to see me in another two days you're going to see me tomorrow you're going to see me again tonight I'm going to take up space in this gym and I will become a part of this community. I will become a regular. And if you decide to still get scared of me in the change room, if you decide to grab your bag and your keys and make a little kerfuffle, that's on you because I'm not going to let you project that onto me. And the same thing with the shopping centres. You best believe I'm going to go in here and get this fresh produce for my child. If you want to search my bag, I might be tired. I might just open it or I might fight you for it. I might demand to see your manager and call you out for racial stereotyping. Whatever I feel, I will still continue to take up space. And, guys, the reason why I know how to take up space is because of these big, uh, voluptuous and powerful and diva and hilarious and strong women that I grew up around. So it always connects back to those role models I had as a young girl.
0: Yeah. And I really hope that people can do the same looking up to you. So That's not it. only just oh, your daughter, you. but like the wider community and even non-Indigenous people. I think That's that you, there's, there's so much to look up to with, like you said, your tenacity and your um, will you. to be who you are and to go, you know what, like these things are happening around me and it sucks so much and it's having mm-hmm. such an impact but I'm still going to be me, and I'm still going to do me, and I think that is that is being healthy is is sort of committing Thank to you. that's who you are and what you're doing. Um, so one more thing before we finish up, yeah, I want sure. I've heard about this Midnight Mothers course that you're doing, Yay. so could you tell us more about what this is? So, guys, I'm running a four week program.
1: So I know this uh, podcast will be released later on, and that's fantastic because the po- uh, the workshop is until the end of next month. Um, so that's the end of June end of June, I was about to say July, June. So at the end of June, the uh, workshops will be kicking off. So it's going to be exploring the privatisation of the birthing industry and the impacts that that's had on First Nations women. So I, during my birthing experience, unfortunately experienced a lot of racism, but also a lot of uh, health shaming. So being a bigger woman, being overweight, um, they love to throw the BMI in my face during that time. That was a thing. Um, so they were always throwing BMI in my face, You know, showing me the charts, uh, making me feel like I was fat my unborn child uh, before she was there they went through you know they showed me how to do a, a prick test for diabetes when I had no indication of what that looked like but they already had premeditated that I would be diabetic so I'm discussing that in the body of work but also looking at birthing uh, techniques or approaches within Britain at the time and how they kind of brought that over to Australia and what we see today unfortunately there's been a 40% of closure of birthing units in Australia over the last 20 20 years so again exploring the rights of women in this country so if you're in, interested in learning about
0: that please get over to my insta and um, have a look yeah so sorry to clarify but sort of who is it for is it for expectant mums is it for people yeah. who are just interested in learning like
1: I think it's for anyone. So it's um, for Indigenous and non-Indigenous people. Like a lot of my work, it has that duality because we just don't know, just like Mm. you don't know, just like I don't know. Unfortunately, this country is really failing its young people. So when we go through our schooling system, we're not educated about the closure of these birthing suites or units in these uh, rural and remote towns. Mm. We're not talked about the failings and the shortcomings of the birthing industry on mothers and uh, women. We always hear about, you know, this post and prenatal a, a prenatal depression but we're not talking about why and what contributes to that so this workshop is for women in general and um, especially if you want to understand the impacts that it has on our journey uh, in, in Australia if that makes sense.
0: Yeah that's incredible I look forward to having a look into that it sounds yes. like it's such a great um, <laughs> just a great opportunity to learn um, and Thank on you. that note with learning we as I said we're all here mm-hmm. learning so what would be some advice that you could give to either myself or our listeners as to how we can do better? So how as non-Indigenous people, we can do better to um, Indigenous Australians or um, our First Nations people?
1: I think that's an amazing question. And I feel like what you're doing, like I am so... Honored to be here, you know, using your, excuse you guys, my bloody throat, using your um, platform and distributing your power. You didn't have to interview me. You didn't have to get into the complexities of health. You know, you could have stayed with the mainstream and populated and produced this dominant narrative, you know, what Australia is producing right now, which is not conscientious, which is not conscious, which is not challenging what it means to be healthy. And you would have been. Um, celebrated for that, but rather you're going down a path that is uncharted, you're creating space and you're bringing us along with you. So I think what you're doing with your work is a perfect example and anyone listening in have that bravery and the heart to do that and in any capacity. If it's at your workplace, if it's with your family and you're having two hard conversations, if it's in your mum's and bubs baby group, there may be no Indigenous women or babies in the space, but encouraging others to be conscious about what the experiences are like for first nations people in this country because our history guys the you know 80,000 years we've lived before uh, British settlement or other arrivals or immigration into this country is your history and what we're enduring right now is a part of your national story as well so engaging with it and um again having that bravery so thank you so much for having me today
0: no, that's my pleasure. And oh, sorry, one more. I don't know, I've said one more about four times, but. Yes, no, thing- I'm, I'm okay. <laughs> I think that exactly what you said is having the courage and the bravery because. It is an incredibly vulnerable thing. And, like, I'll be perfectly honest, before jumping on this podcast today, I was feeling quite vulnerable in the sense that I don't want to say the wrong things. I don't want to offend you in any way. I want to have this conversation where we can sort of look at things from all different perspectives. And I think that if there's anything to take home from this um, for the listeners is that, Mm. yeah, it's going to feel uncomfortable and it's going to feel scary and you're going to feel like you're doing it wrong like you're never going to approach it perfectly and again one of my biggest things of being a perfectionist is not to be a perfectionist it's so (laughs) true I'm a Virgo I so relate to that (laughs) Um, but you you can't be perfect with it and it is going to feel uncomfortable and Mm -hmm. I think the biggest thing that I sort of take away from it is to, to yet yeah, to lean into the discomfort and lean into the vulnerability and not mm. to put your armor up and not to put your walls up That's and so be willing to listen and learn and absorb yeah. and, um, yeah, and, and try not to, yet yeah, not to get defensive about things, just listen and, and hopefully, you know, both parties can come to the conversation and listen to That's both it. stories and we can sort of learn from that that's right and
1: doing the work that guys we've never been afforded the opportunity to do so so i like to look at it is in 2021 uh, sorry, in 21 now we have in social media we have the internet we can connect and have conversations like you and i are having i can access your life and your lived experience of, of what you've been through and navigated as a, as a woman in this country we have never been able to do that guys we have never been able to link and learn about each other personally without having to you know cross those uncomfortable boundaries so really utilize social media for the good utilize it to bring an uplift marginalized voices and connect on a human level but always if you are feeling like a bit nervous or like you said about earlier on when we first started our chat even around what to label first nations or indigenous people as feel comfortable enough to ask because we will really appreciate that you are showing that respect um, to begin
0: with yeah, that's amazing. And where can we find you online? What's your Instagram handle? Yeah,
1: so I'm 8983AJ, um, 8983AJ. And all my content is always over there and my inbox is open. So even after it's Oh, and I'm on TikTok. Yes, I'm on no one two two o four on TikTok. Oh, bloody TikTok. That's another story. But um, my inbox is always open. And if you guys have any questions after this live, feel free to hit me up. And um, I'm just happy
0: to, again, collaborate and to share um, my story. Thank you so much for sharing your story. We are so very grateful to be able to um, hear your story and to be able to learn from you. Um, And I hope that we can have you back on the podcast again soon because I think there is so much that we can discuss in terms of, um, yeah, just having more conversations like this. There's so many I would absolutely love that, to collaborate like this and coming on as a guest has been really
1: nice. So thank you.
0: Thank you all so much for tuning into the very first episode of Off the Record. I think Alicia has set the standard for this podcast and the caliber of diverse and important conversations that I really do want to be having on this show. Um, As we are a new podcast, I would love every ounce of your support to help get these important conversations heard by as many people as possible. You can support me by subscribing and leaving a rating and review on your favorite podcasting platform uh, and by screenshotting this episode and sharing it on your Instagram stories and tagging me at Marika Day. If you have any suggestions on topics you'd like me to cover or guests you'd like me to interview in future episodes, please just shoot me a direct message on Instagram and I will get back to you. Thank you again so much and I hope you enjoyed the episode and look forward to speaking with you guys next week.